Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and you know it's another fortnight which means it's another news roundup and with me today are the two gurus themselves. We've got Ibrahim Khan to my right here who's one of the co-founders of IFG and we've got Mohsen Patel who's the other co-founder and we're going to be discussing some very exciting topics. So let's dive straight into it. Oh, but before we do that, stick around until the end and you're going to find out how Ibrahim and Mohsen met. How did this love affair really begin? It's not literally a love affair, but kind of of sorts. You're so, making it worse. Stop digging. Stop <laughs> digging. Right. So biggest news story of the day, something that nobody can stop talking about is Omicron. Now, I know that sounds like something out of Terminator, but it's not. It's the new variant of COVID. Unfortunately, we've got a new variant of COVID that's been discovered in South Africa, though its origin is unknown. And how it works is essentially this variant has a mutated spike gene. So the spike gene is that pointy bit in the little spikes that come off that circular COVID virus model that we all seen. Is that the technical term? That pointy bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know me with my <laughs> biological terms. I know it all. <laughs> so the way vaccines work is that it trains your body to identify these spike proteins. And essentially your body is able to detect the virus much faster because it recognizes the spike proteins and therefore it's able to repel it. But now that this variant has different spike proteins, it essentially means that your body may not recognize it as fast. So that leaves a lot of questions open regarding vaccine effectiveness and whether this will be like the Delta wave. So a lot of concerns around that. Boris Johnson has come out yesterday saying, don't cancel your Christmas parties. So the IFG Christmas party is still on. <laughs> You got your Christmas jumper on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Christmas mood. Although my mum claims it's not a Christmas jumper. So I'll let you guys in the comments decide whether this is a Christmas jumper or not. We think it is. <laughs> a sales fact if you uh, go to the supermarkets after Christmas, you can get a lot of Christmas jumpers, but very cheap. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Ditto chocolate after Easter. Yeah. And Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. And Christmas trees after Christmas. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Not really a tip there. <laughs> All the Muslims got Christmas trees up in January. In January. I think it was, it was a sale. I've got five of them now. Getting ready for Ramadan. <laughs> so back to the story. There may be a possible lockdown that may happen early next year, although Boris Johnson has said that don't cancel your Christmas plans. Everything should go as planned. But he is doing a rollout of booster shots that will be available to millions of adults across the country. Now, I was wondering, with COVID variations and mutations happening so consistently, is this what the future looks like? Constant mask wearing, constant fear, and ever burdened NHS struggling? What do you guys think? As I've understood it, you know, having kind of just read some of the commentary around this stuff, I think the mutation is it can be a good thing, right? Because when a virus mutates, it apparently, you know, weakens. And I think what they're saying, the data is saying anyway, that certainly in South Africa, there's not been any severe hospitalizations from this variant. And I don't think it's a question right now of like, this is, you know, Ebola-like. Mm. It's a question of just the spread, right? So do we get to a place where this thing mutates so much that it eventually just becomes a pointless disease? Fair, like the flu could become something very minor. True. What do you think, Ibrahim? I don't know what to think because uh, I'm not a biologist, but my 
instinct suggests that we need to take precautions, but we need to carry on with our lives. Because at this point, I think it's becoming a material dent as a percentage of our overall lives. So, you know, the average person, you know, lives, you know, across the world, perhaps it's higher in the UK, but 60, right, let's say. And that's, and COVID has already been around at least two years or so, and it's probably going to be around for four, five, six years. That's now a twelfth or a tenth of a person's lifetime. Mm. So that's 10% of someone's life. So, you know, I think when we get into that kind of territory, it doesn't make sense to be on like high lockdown, especially when it's affecting billions of people and inevitably you can't control billions of people. Mm. So, mm. and it pains me to say this, I think Boris is right at this point. Wow. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Ibrahim thinks Boris Johnson is right. I mean, kids as well, right? Mm. Talking about adult lives, what about kids' lives? Like, you know, I've got a six-year-old and a five-year-old at home yeah. who for like half their lives have known, you know, COVID, lockdown, remote learning, this, that, and the other. Yeah. And I remember like during lockdown, I was trying to explain to them that this isn't what life is like, by the way. Like this is the first time it's happened in my life. And, you know, trying to get that concept across. It's, it's actually mad when you think about it. It's really crazy thinking about just the fact that masajid were closed throughout Ramadan, that Hajj didn't happen. All of this that in Ramadan, people couldn't go to the masjid. And I remember like all the elders at our mosque were so emotional because it was the first time in their like, you know, 60, 70 years of life where they could not enter the masjid, like where it was physically closed. So I think now that two years have passed and people have kind of got used to it, it doesn't seem as so much of a strange thing, but really it's like a very different era we're now living in. But I do agree with Ibrahim. I do think that it is a manner of just carrying on because you can't live in fear forever, right? Mm. True. Right. On to our next exciting story. Now, there's a great concept that has been talked about across the TikTok and social media world. And I understand it not even a little bit. So, uh, Mohsen, why don't you explain this next thing for us? You're passing it on to someone who also doesn't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That's why you guys come to us, right? (laughs) No, but I mean, the idea is Web3, right? And we've heard a lot of people talk about Web3 and there's two sides to this debate. One side of the debate is Web3 is it's all a load of garbage it's just another buzzword we've had lots of buzzwords before you know all of this stuff blockchain crypto etc that underlies web3 it's all a solution in search of a problem this isn't a real thing on the other hand you have the very pro web3 people and you know very smart people in this camp too and smart people in the other camp as well that say no this is what the future is is what it looks like so let's kind of just you know break it down a bit so what is web3 the way i've heard it described which i think is quite neat is you had web like web1 uh, very early web which is what you can describe as read only you have web2 which is read and write, and you have Web3, which is read, write, and own. So Web1 read-only is basically taking your bricks and mortar stores online or you know a magazine and you put it online or that kind of thing. Web2 is where we are now, where we're reading and writing, i.e. we are interacting. So, you know, social media, you know, this kind of thing, YouTube, all that stuff would be Web2. And Web3 is where all of the things that are happening in Web2 
because they're happening through centralized companies like YouTube and Facebook and Google who own lots and lots of data, Web3 is where projects start happening on the web that are actually owned by the people and you know for the people. And the way that these things evolve and develop is individuals are making contributions and that's their part to the web. There's a chap called Gavin Wood, who's apparently the father of this term, Web3, and he coined it as wanting, what was it, less trust more truth i.e you know at the moment we trust people like you know google and facebook and whatever but that's more like you know blind faith to some extent yeah i've got a great idea why don't we today claim web 4 <laughs> we coined like, it. You, you just literally called out some random dude all he's done is put a number before <laughs> web, after web so that uh, web 4 is where you can read and write and own and eat the web <laughs> smell it it could actually happen you know that's not a bizarre thought you know yeah, like the sensory yeah. yeah the sensory interaction i think with... smells more likely though isn't it oh yeah, i don't know like through the speakers a mist comes out fine okay well anyway i've made the claim so maybe that's web five maybe like in like you know 20 years from now someone's going to be like ibrahim khan first coined <laughs> web four on the news roundup <laughs> yeah Fair. I think it's interesting. I feel it's more an evolution rather than a revolution because you could technically own a lot of content while it's on social media, for example, like whatever you post on YouTube or whatever you create in terms of a website, that's your content that you technically own. But that's still categorized in Web 2. So I feel like these are just kind of like fences that have been put up, but they're very arbitrary at this point. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that, you know, from like a legal standpoint, the intellectual property of, you know, something that you you upload is yours. Obviously, there's a bunch of caveats that YouTube will make you sign before you upload it. But I think that, you know, sometimes we are limited by how we think about the world. If you think about the way the web is right now, nobody could have predicted that it would have been like that. 15 years ago, for example, uh, it's very, very hard. Like these things are rarely revolutions and not like overnight things. They like slowly, slowly happen. And then kind of, you know, people realize it without necessarily coming to like a light bulb or light yeah. switch moment. I'm more in this camp. I, I do think that this stuff will revolutionize. I think that this idea that individual contributors to a project that is decentralized is going to be a thing. Like, there's no doubt. So, you know, one other way of putting it, and I was reading an interview from this guy, Gavin Wood, and he was saying that, look, when you chat on something like, uh, let's say, WhatsApp, WhatsApp says encrypted, we have blind faith in Facebook, who are the owners of WhatsApp, to that this is encrypted. And he describes it as well, okay, but what if they've got a key to like decrypt it? Yeah. Like we don't know that. None of this is open source. They don't publish their code. But if you've got an open source project that is for the people, by the people, contributed to by everybody, and everything is there for everyone to see, then he describes it as, you know, it's akin to me and you going in a forest and, and talking i.e. that something's happening in a public setting, but you can be very, very confident in its privacy. Fair, fair point. What do you think about all this, Ibrahim? On MetaMask, which is this app that you can hold cryptocurrencies through, there's a section called Web, I think it's Web3, I think it is. Is that literally just them naming their secure browser? No, I don't think so. I've not actually seen it. My sense, though, is what it would be is probably people building things that are kind of, you know, fit for this Web3. One way to think about this, right, is, you know, you know, I said before, companies are holding 
uh, data. So your Googles and your Facebooks. And the way that this has evolved is, you know, as humans, we've gone from like, you know, small village kind of societies where we trust Khizr the butcher because like he gives really good meat, for example. Like we know that he catches from, it from fresh. donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> horse meat. Remember that? Scandal? Secretly horse meat. Um, we really trust Khizr. And so we'll always go to Khizr for, for our meat. Like we do that all the time. That's a very kind of centralized world. We ported that over to the web. So you've got companies, big companies that we trust. And then you've got like, you know, uh, regulators that we trust to kind of survey all of these people as well. Mm-hmm. But regulators are inefficient. They're government funded. Usually that can mean gaps in terms of funding. They're usually overwhelmed. And the old kind of saying, who watches the watchman? So all of this stuff is happening through centralized layers because we've always done it that way. We've never really seen it any other way. But if you've got a world where your data is stored across, you know, lots of different things, so it's actually private. So even if I hack this person and all of their data, which wouldn't happen because of cryptography and everything's hashed. But even if it did, I don't have your complete picture. Everything is kind of across different nodes, as it were. Very interesting. Well, we'll just have to wait and see how this goes. So for our final story for today, Ibrahim, what's coming at us? Our man Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, has stepped down from Twitter and he's handed over his reins to a man called Parag Agrawal, who is from Indian background, as the name probably suggests. I thought this was fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, I find it fascinating that someone like Jack Dorsey and you know Elon Musk and possibly others run publicly listed, large publicly listed companies, and not just one of them, but two of them. And I'm fascinated by that. And I don't know if that's something that's sustainable long term. I I suspect that with Jack Dorsey, it shows that it probably isn't. I mean, as business people, I struggle to kind of fathom how Jack did it. So I'd love to, you know, talk a little bit about that. And then I think the other really interesting theme here is how many Indians are in charge of big tech at the moment. So we're talking Microsoft, we're talking Google, we're talking, I think, Ubisoft, Twitter, and then there was a number of others, Oracle. Mm. There was so many of them that are now run by Indian origin, non-Muslim, but Hindu origin, Indian tech experts. IBM as well. IBM as well. And that got me thinking about, you know, why is that? Not necessarily in a bad way, but, you know, why is that? Mm. And I had some initial thoughts, which is that, you know, Indians are well into tech and and do well. And then once you get in, I think the network effect kicks in as well. And they kind of look after each other. Mm. Indians have a really sound base in IIIT, which is a big institute. IIIT. Yeah. Uh, Because they're like Web3, but for IT. Yeah. (laughs) But for Indians. Um, (laughs) So... You know, they've got that really strong academic pedigree. Mm. And then there might be something around, you know, how America wants to ally up with India as a counterpoint Mm. against China in the future. And having strong ties allows them to do that. Like, you know, there's a lot of Israeli CEOs or leadership people in the U.S. ecosystem. So it's almost like, I think, like an axis of Israel, USA and and India. Mm. I mean, I might just be, you know, these are just my kind of really high level observations, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it's very interesting. I do think there is that political sense, but I strongly do identify with the idea that it is due to the rigorous process that many Indians go through when they go into 
tech fields, so the education system, especially the top tech universities, they have a very rigorous application process and it's hugely competitive. So naturally that environment will allow the creme de la creme, as they say, to really excel. And I feel like that level of competency might not be tested as much the same elsewhere in the world. So I know with this new CEO of Twitter, for example, he was, I think, top of his class in one of the top institutions for tech. And then when he came over, I think he did a PhD in Harvard, Stanford. I think? Stanford. That was also in computer science. So naturally, you could see that he was very academically brilliant. And naturally, someone like that in going into the business world will excel quite well if he has good business acumen I'm not, as well. I'm not sure, though. Like, a bright mind maketh not a business leader. True. So like, I think it really helps, though. Sure. My thoughts are uh, a few things. Like, number one, it's fascinating that, or at least I find it fascinating that, you know, if you think about the archetypal business leader, even 30 years ago, as recent as 30 years ago, it was not, you know, a nerdy software engineer. From India. From India. Oh, I mean, full stop, right? But now you look at the companies you reeled off who basically running the world one way or another. Run the show, yeah. It's all full of either Indian software engineers or at large, you know, just software engineers. Um, people who built something themselves with their hands, but crucially, they graduated with the company. Um, they didn't then kind of build it and say, oh, this kind of business thing isn't for me. I'm just going to keep building in the background. And I think the strength of these companies is you know, very, very closely correlated with the fact that you know, you've got software engineers in leadership positions, meaning that you know, they were the ones that kind of built this from scratch and they understand it intimately. And they've then kind of gone on and gone on to lead the business in a very big way. Speaking about the India thing in, in particular, I think that it's interesting, obviously from the engineering side, as you said, there's a strong kind of provenance when it comes to Indian tech. But more than that, I think, you know, people coming from that region tend to be, you know, slightly more entrepreneurial perhaps than other regions, tend to be willing to put more hard work in, frankly. Yeah. Take risks. Take risks. Start from the bottom. Yeah. And also, I think that, you know, for the types that, I mean, I don't know the background of all of these, these CEOs, but I suspect they come from pretty good families. Some mixture. Is that? There's some really humble ones as well. Are there? Okay. Like, I think some that Pichai was like quite... Right. background interesting interesting uh because what i, I was going to relative to where, where he is now he's earning hundreds of millions a year yeah of course yeah 100 but what i mean is that if you come from like a decent you know indian background you've got the ability to you know head over to the us which not everybody has and then and then i think it's a bit of what you said as well like the network effects of you know one successful indian ceo means that at the time when you know X board is deciding their next CEO, it's not a wild idea to appoint, you know, yeah. an Indian CEO. Completely agree. All right, go on, Ibrahim, Mohsen, tell us how this love affair began. It was a moonlit night in... Uh, I mean, isn't every night moonlit? <laughs> That's true, yeah. Well, there's some, some nights where there's no moon, right? 2011, <laughs> and I was attending an ISOC barbecue at St. Catherine College, Oxford. Uh, next to the cricket field and that's where i spotted a young man he didn't have a beard at the time he had a shocking head of hair i was a i was a i was, a, I was yeah. a waiter serving uh, chicken legs now and he was standing under the tree 
and the moonlight struck him and I was like did Bollywood songs go off in your head Nasheeds yeah <laughs> it's more like war music <laughs> um, so yeah that's how we met it was at an eyesight barbecue basically nice nice mashallah anything to add Mohsin that was memorable from that first meeting uh, no nothing. did Ibrahim strike you as your future best friend Oddly, yeah, actually. Um, I think um, we, well, we just like, we just hit it off, I think. And it's it's very rare that that happens. Nice. Nice. What what made you trust each other? Is it just the time you spent and uh, only? We got involved in this really high profile crime. We basically backed each other to the, no, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) It's just a time thing. Like you do things together. And that, you know, they say, don't you, that you don't know someone until you kind of live with them, travel with them, do business with them, etc. And, you know, we've done all of those things and more. So, yeah. MashaAllah, there you go. Here's to a long and fruitful relationship, inshallah. And with that, we conclude today's episode. Jazakallah khairan to all the viewers joining us today. And inshallah, see you in another fortnight for another news roundup. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.